Father, we need so much. We need your spirit to move so that the words that I speak will be right and true, discernible, applicable, rightly handling this word of truth. We need your spirit to move in our own hearts so that as we hear this word, that we would be receptive to it and respond to it. We need your spirit to work in our lives so that he will change us by this word and produce the fruit of this word and produce the fruit that only he can provide through us. We need transformation for even those of us who have trusted in Christ our Savior are not yet perfect but are still looking forward to the day when we will see our Savior and will be perfected in His presence. And so, Father, we need, we need transformation this morning. And we need worship. We need worship and we need lips to speak words and hearts that are moved rightly so that we offer to you a sacrifice of praise that is pleasing to you, that is in accordance with your character and your nature and your person. And Father, all these things are beyond us, but they are not beyond you to work in us. And so we appeal to you that even as we open this book to hear from it again, that you would be pleased by this as an expression of our worship and that you would be pleased to change us by this book. We commend our time to you for your glory and for our transformation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I am surrounded by Bibles. Some time ago, I, I sat in my chair in my office and just kind of rotated around and kind of looked for all the Bibles in my office, and I, I counted 22 Bibles on my desk and on my shelves surrounding me. I don't have quite as many Bibles at home. I haven't counted them, but I know there are at least a dozen, if not more. I have a Bible software that has 20 English translations on it. On that same Bible software, I have not just one Greek New Testament, but I have three Greek New Testaments and the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek Old Testament. On that same Bible software, I have 14 more translations of the Bible that I cannot read because I do not know Spanish, German, French, Italian, or Romanian. I have a New Testament in my car. My cell phone has an iOS app for my Bible software that's on my desktop computer, so all those Bible translations that I have on my desktop, I have in my pocket with me almost all the time. I also have another app on my phone that gives me access to dozens, if not hundreds, of other Bible translations, again, most of which I cannot read. I figured out this morning as I was thinking about this that I dare say that I am probably never more than about 10 feet away from a copy of the Scriptures at any time. And I suspect that you are in a very similar position The question for most of us is not, do I have a copy of the Scriptures? But do I believe the Scriptures that I have and do the Scriptures have me? Since you are attending worship at Grace Bible Church this morning, you likely affirm the authority of the Scriptures. You probably agree that that the Bible is inerrant. You you will readily affirm that the Bible is sufficient and powerful, but, but when difficulty arises and when you are challenged in life, do, do you really believe those statements? 
Does the way you live affirm that the Bible not only has a a place of priority in your life, but that you really believe this book to be true? That it is, as our doctrinal statement says, the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible and God-breathed. Do you believe this book so much? that it is the first place that you turn when you have trouble. That when you are counseling someone, that it is the place that you go. And just a side note, we are all counselors all the time because we're always giving opinion about everything. And when we're offering our opinion to our friends at lunch, when we're offering our opinions to our children about the nature of their conduct, when we're when we're offering our opinions to our parents or our siblings or our neighbors about any manner of items, we're giving counsel, we're giving instruction. And is it clear that the instruction we're giving is, is rooted in this book and comes with the authority of this word? At Grace Bible Church, we love people and we love Christ and, and we love discipleship and we love the Bible. And because we love Christ and because we love people, we want to help people that are suffering and hurting and have need. And, and we, want, we want them to be changed, but, but we can't change them. Guys, I don't, I don't know if this is a revelation to you, but, but that woman who is sitting next to you that is your wife, you can't change her. And, and gals, that husband that's sitting next to you, you... You can't change Him. And if you have your children or your grandchildren with you today, I would say good luck, but I don't believe in luck. So, um, Godspeed. You can't change them. You, it gets worse than that. You can't even change yourself. You, you have no mechanism within you to fundamentally change the nature of your being so that you are pleasing to God and righteous before Him and doing righteousness all the time. You you can't do it. None of us can. But we are pointers to the one means of change in the life of the sufferer and the sinner, and that is the Word of God. The Word of God, used by the Spirit of God, is what changes and transforms us. Why are so we, we so adamant about using Scripture as the primary means of ministering to people? Because Scripture itself attests to its power to change individuals. And that Scripture is the means that the Spirit of God uses to change people. Consider just a few examples from Scripture. For instance, obedience to the Bible is a mark of prosperity and success. That's Joshua chapter 1. Scripture is the means to spiritual stability and prosperity. That's Psalm 1. As we read this morning in Psalm 19, the Bible restores and makes wise and produces joy and enlightens and warns and protects and is more desirable than gold and even than honey. The Word of God is an enduring, eternal message. In contrast, everything else that we know in this world, it's eternal, which is why the teacher and preacher are persistent in proclaiming only the message of God's Word because only it endures. That's First Peter chapter 1. Every part of Scripture is beneficial to grow the believer. That's Second Peter chapter 1. God's Word is the tool used by the Spirit of God to bring transformation in the life of the believer. That's Colossians chapter 3. Over and over and over, we find in the Scriptures a self-attestation that that this book is the only means for change and transformation in our lives. The Scripture is unique in its power and abilities. There is no more important weapon that we have than the Scriptures to guide our life. It it is useful to protect us from the deceiving attacks of the evil one, and it's useful to protect us from the desires of the flesh by helping us to understand the inclinations and longings of our soul. It is the protector of our lives, and it is a soul examiner. It is powerful. Perhaps... 
Perhaps you're not completely convinced. Perhaps you think it's just one more voice. And so I want to draw our attention this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3 so that we can examine this one passage, verses 16 and 17, that will compel us to trust and to use this divinely given book. This this message, as well as the next two or three, really flow out of some of my study over the last um, month or so. In fact, this is, this is chapter one in the book. This is the foundation, not just for a counseling and discipling ministry, but this is the foundation of everything we do. If, if this is removed, we have nothing to stand on. And we need a reminder of the inspired, sufficient word. As we look at this passage, verses 16 and 17 in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we will find that all scripture is sufficient for all the spiritual needs of all people. All Scripture is, insp- ins- is sufficient for all the spiritual needs of all people. And as we look at this passage, we will find that there are three, fri- three primary truths that the Apostle teaches us about the inspiration and sufficiency of the Word of God. The first is given to us in verse 16, and that is the Word of God is God's Word. The Word of God is God's Word. These these two verses, verses 16 and 17, point to three aspects of, of God's Word. We're going to see, first of all, the source of Scripture's power. Then we're going to see the nature of Scripture's power. And then we're going to see the purpose of Scripture's power. And, and the source of it, to begin with, the source of it is in God Himself. Notice how the Apostle begins, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture. And when he says all Scripture, he's hinting back to what he has already spoken of in verses 14 and 15. So he's talking to Timothy and reminding him of his heritage. And so he says in verse 14, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. You've learned them from, from your mother and grandmother. You've learned them from me as, as we have taught you and built into you the scriptures. Remember those things that we taught you from your childhood forward. And then he specifically says what it is that he was taught from his childhood. Verse 15, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom. You, you've known the sacred writings. You've, you've known the scriptures. And then he draws an application. Why, why is this so essential that Timothy draw himself back and, and keep rooting his ministry on the scriptures? Because he says all scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture, every word of Scripture, every aspect of truth of, of, of Scripture is truth. Every, every part of Scripture comes from God. There is there's nothing in the Scriptures that don't come from God. Now, as you think about this, think, okay, Paul's, Paul's writing around the year 64 to 66 A.D., and as he writes the words, all scripture, what's scriptures? If he could, if he could get a scroll, go to the synagogue, get a scroll and unroll the scriptures, what scripture is he thinking about? Old Testament, right? But, but there is a hint by some of the New Testament writers that, that they're even thinking beyond the Old Testament. So for instance, in 2 Peter, Paul, or excuse me, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, talking about Paul's writings, verse 16, 2 Peter 3, he says, also in all his letters, Paul, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to stand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Paul is writing, and Peter says that Paul's writings are, are on a plane akin to the rest of the Scriptures. So, so already, though the, the Bible hasn't been canonized yet, already the New Testament writers are saying there's something going on when Paul writes. He's not just writing a letter. He's being moved by God. And this is, this is God's Word that is flowing through the pen of the Apostle. If you still are in 2 Timothy chapter 3, turn back just a couple of pages to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
First Timothy chapter 5. Look at this. This is cool. For the Scripture says, and now he's going to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So, so he's making a point about, about care for the elders, and, and he draws the point, he draws the principle from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And then also he says, the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle and, now with that word and, he's saying what I'm about to quote is also part of the Scriptures. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Where in the Old Testament is that found? It's not. Where is it found? It's found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, when Jesus speaks that. And so the Apostle Paul is taking Deuteronomy chapter 25, pairing it up with Luke chapter 10 and saying these are both the Scriptures. And, and his point is that, that, that what is already being written about Jesus already needs to be considered as Scripture. So when he says all Scripture, we immediately think, well, he's thinking about Old Testament. No, brothers and sisters, he's thinking beyond the Old Testament. He's thinking anything that is considered to be Scripture, it comes from God. It is revelatory of God. And specifically, notice he says, all Scripture is inspired by God. That, that one word, it's, it's one word in Greek, inspired by God, doesn't refer to something that's inspiring as in it's motivational, as in that was, that was really neat or I'm, I'm really moved or I'm really compelled. The, the word inspired by God originates... Um, from, from two words that Paul puts together that mean God breathed. So God breathed out the words. It is not that he breathed into something as if, as if these words already were in existence and then God breathed into them and they became the word of God. No, from his inner being, God spoke out the undiminished, true faithful word of God. It is sourced in Him, found in Him, directed by Him, revealed by Him. In fact, it's not just the words, but but Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, that every stroke and every mark of the Scriptures originates from God. It's His book. Now, if you go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, you will find how the Scriptures were written. So, so men of God take their own personality, their own traits, their own education, their own background, their own vocabulary, and they write. And as they are writing, Peter says they are being moved by the Holy Spirit. So, so the Holy Spirit takes a man's real personality and directs him in such a way that while it's the man's words, it's God's word alone. It's, it's God's word. Now, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 isn't pointing to how the scriptures were written. That's what Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 1. He is pointing to the fact solely that this is God's word. It belongs to him It was the words of men, but it is far more than that. It is God's intended, breathed-out Word. The Word belongs to Him. It comes from Him. It emanates from Him. And it culminates in Him. They have the authority and the power that only the Word of God can have. This is what theologians call the inspiration of Scripture. And it teaches the source of Scripture, that what we have in this Word is from God. It doesn't mean that this book contains the Word of God, as in there are some of these words that that are true about God and, and are revealed by Him. It means that everything here is from God. It doesn't mean that that some of these words were written down by men and they become God's Word. No, it means this is God's Word in its very nature. As one writer says, it is the expression of His person, His heart, His mind, and His will. John Stott 
is particularly helpful to us here. He writes this, Scripture is not to be thought of as already in existence when subsequently God breathed into it, but as itself brought into existence by the breath or the Spirit of God. It originated in God's mind and was communicated from God's mouth by God's breath or Spirit. It is therefore rightly termed the Word of God, for God spoke it. Indeed, as the prophets used to say, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. If you want to hear God speak, then listen to what God's Word said says. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. Scripture is no less authoritative than if Christ were bodily present in this room and would speak. This Scripture takes the same authority as Christ would if He would audibly speak to us in our presence this moment. There is, this is a reminder that this word is God's word. It is authoritative and powerful as God's word and we, we must submit to it. There's a second principle that Paul teaches in these verses and that is that the word of God is God's sufficient word. It is his sufficient word. In the remainder of this verse, Paul is going to talk about the nature of Scripture's power. So, so Scripture is sourced in God so it's, it's power, or excuse me, yeah, it's power, it finds its source from God. Now, now he's going to tell us what this power of Scripture can do. And, and, and we, we will often use a word sufficient to explain what the Scriptures can do. It is sufficient to us. And that, that simply means that it is powerful to produce change and transformation in us. But we don't just mean it's powerful. We don't just mean it's, it's strong. We mean that it is supremely strong. Now, when I say it is supremely strong, I don't want you to think about what you might, might experience this afternoon after, after our worship service. So you might leave here. You might go to a pizza establishment, and they will say, what kind of pizza do you want? And you say, I want a supreme pizza. Now, taken literally... A supreme pizza is every condiment that, that could possibly be put on a pizza is put on that pizza. And you've got to eat it all. But somebody found that there were some things that they didn't put on that supreme pizza. And so they added a few more things to it, but they'd already taken the word supreme. So what do you do? Well, you, now you have to call it a su- super supreme pizza. And I suppose if they want to put anchovies on it, now you've got to call it a super-duper supreme pizza? I don't want you to think about the power of God like that kind of supremacy. I mean, He is absolutely, infinitely, limitlessly supreme. This is the authority there, there is no other authority. This really is an authority that comes without limits. It is, in its essence, fully supreme. What can it do in its supreme sufficiency? It will teach you, because I don't mean this in an insulting way, but you're ignorant, and so am I. We, we need this word to teach us Notice what the Apostle Paul says. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's sourced in Him. It comes from Him. And it is profitable. To, to say that it's profitable speaks to its value. It, it is serviceable to the moral and spiritual needs of mankind. That means that, that the entire volume of the Scriptures, every word, every phrase, has profit to the one who will re- read it and receive it with care. There is nothing unprofitable in this book. Now, there are some things that are hard to understand. Peter already said that about the Apostle Paul, right? He says, the Apostle Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. Okay, some things are more difficult to discern. We've got to work at it. And there are some things that are a little bit more difficult to apply. So, so the genealogies, for instance, you've got to work at. What, what do I see in this text 
that can move me towards Christ-likeness and transformation. Now, there's a way to apply the genealogies, but it's a little more difficult, isn't it? Paul's point is, every word has profit and value. God put it there. God keeps it there because it is profitable and valuable. And it is profitable, Paul says, in four particular ways. It is profitable, he says, first of all, for teaching. Why do we need to be taught? Why why do the scriptures need to teach us? Because part of the effect of the fall of Adam into sin was the corruption of the mind. The theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. Not the noetic, that's a man, Noah, but the noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, effect of sin. Noeo is the word, Greek word for mind. And when theologians are talking about the noetic effect of sin, what they mean is that sin changed the way we think. Our minds no longer work rightly. Turn back for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 5, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. In another of the letters that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, he wrote the book of Ephesians, and then First and Second Timothy are also written to the Ephesian church. In this first letter that he wrote them, Ephesians chapter 4, he's ex- encouraging them and exhorting them to live life in a particular way, to not live like they used to live before they trusted in Christ as Savior. And so he starts this in verse 17, Ephesians 4, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. So, so the Gentiles are trying to figure out life And it just doesn't work. So all the things that they're coming up with, unbelievers are coming up with, as they look at life and saying, well, this will fix all the problems we have in this world. (laughs) It doesn't work. Does, Does anybody else look at the news or pick up a newspaper or hear an anecdotal story about something that happens in our culture and go, what are they thinking? Okay, so there's like a few of you that do that. That's because of the futility of the mind. They don't have Christ. They don't understand the fallenness of mankind. They don't understand the solution for our fallenness. And when they think, it's futility. It can't help. It can't fix. It gets worse from there. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. They're in a dark room. With no light, with no sunshine, they hold their hand in front of their faces. They cannot see it. That is the way their minds work. They, they are darkened to understanding. There is understanding right in front of them and they cannot see it. They are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They don't know. They have no training. They have no understanding. They have no comprehension. They have no intellectual ability to discern the truth about God and life. It is because of the hardness, verse 18, of their heart. Heart, mind, will, conscience, a lot of those things are used synonymously. So it's not just that they don't understand, but they have a hard heart they don't want to understand. They want to exclude God. This is Romans chapter 1. They're suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. They're trying to push God down, to ignore Him, to put Him away. Verse 19, and they having become callous, It's not just that they have a hard heart, but they have allowed it to remain in a hardened condition. It's calloused. So they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Friends, that is every single unbeliever. Now, Now, when we come to trust in Jesus Christ, He changes that. But He doesn't change all of it. John Frame, in his systematic theology, writes this, Although we generally consider Satan to be knowledgeable and intelligent, and although many opponents of God seem wise to the world and to themselves, they are guilty of the worst imaginable stupidity. They haven't a ghost of a chance to defeat God, yet sinners embrace sin with reckless enthusiasm. This is the root 
of sin's noetic effects. Regeneration does not, however, immediately convey to the believer a sense of cognitive rest about all matters pertaining to the faith. Our basic presuppositional commitment to Christ begins at regeneration, but other commitments develop more more gradually, or at least it takes us a while to become conscious of them. Thus, there is not only noetic regeneration, there is also noetic sanctification. There is radical change at the beginning of our spiritual life and gradual change after that. In other words, when God saves us, our minds are opened in a miraculous way. We can understand truth, but we don't understand everything yet. There is a progressive nature to our ongoing, increasing knowledge of God. We, we need knowledge because we're ignorant. And in case you, you haven't bought into that yet, interestingly enough, the New Testament writers 16 times ask the question, do you not know? And when I first searched for that phrase, I thought it's going to be used almost entirely for unbelievers, surely. And it's not. It's used almost entirely of believers. So the New Testament writers look at believers in the church and say, you ought to know. Don't you know? You're ignorant. You you are still under the influence of sin's noetic effect. The unbeliever and the believer both need a teacher and the scriptures are that teacher to give light and openness to the blind and clarity to those who see. But it's not just, it's not just teaching that the scriptures give us. It's not just, it's not just that he teaches us generally, but, but it is that he teaches us particularly about God, about Christ, about salvation, about life. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Notice 1 Timothy chapter 1 talking about the law and the goodness of the law and what the law will do, the Scriptures. He says, We know that the law, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1, is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for those who are ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What what does the law do? What does Scripture do? It takes us to, notice the end of verse 10, sound teaching, doctrinal, hygienic, which is what the word is there, sound, faithful right teaching about God and that is related to and according to the gospel that's Christ, that's the cross, that's sanctification of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. It all comes from God. So it's God's word about God. And that is what we need to know. And that is That word is what the Holy Spirit uses to lead us to the truth about Jesus Christ and our need for transformation. It's interesting, Jesus in in the upper room, John chapter 14, right before he goes to the cross, he says to the disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the Spirit teaches, and He teaches specifically about Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? As you think about your spiritual life, and you think, I want to I fight the good fight of faith. You think back to the spiritual armor that Paul would have us to put on. Remember this from Ephesians chapter 6. We've got all this armor to put on. What's the first piece of armor that he tells us to put on? The belt of truth. What's the truth? It's the Word of God. What's the last piece of armor that we're to take up? The sword of the Spirit. Your spiritual life from beginning to end is rooted in the Scriptures. John MacArthur has rightly said, 
when it comes to godly living and godly service, to grow in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, God breathes Scripture, provides for us the comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary to live as our Heavenly Father desires us to live. This is what we need. Brothers and sisters, our minds need renewal and this book will teach us so that our minds are renewed. There's a second aspect to what it will do in its sufficiency. Paul uses the next word, it will reprove us. That is, it will convict us because we are rebellious. It will reprove us. This this word for reproof um, can, can refer to a refutation of doctrinal error. But most of the time, it, it means to show someone his sin and to, to summon him to repentance. So, so if two people are in conflict with, with one another, someone comes along and, and shines the light of the Scriptures on that person and says, this is the area where you are sinning and this is what needs repentance. It is to expose and to set right and particularly to point away from sin and to repentance. That's what reproof is. It's to point someone to repentance. Someone has called it educative discipline. So it, it, doesn't just, it doesn't just tell us where we are wrong. It calls us to repent and turn away from that sin. And, and notice how these first two words work together, right? So we are taught by the Scripture, so our minds are informed, our consciences are being adapted to what the Word of God says. So, so we are living and striving to live more rightly before God. And then, and then as we have the truth of, of the Scriptures revealed to us, we say, oh, there are places where I'm not doing what I need to be doing. That's reproof. That the Scripture, as we take it in, will confront us with our sin and say, you need change and transformation here. You, you can't keep living this way and following after Christ at the same time. It is, it is necessary that we receive these kinds of words because, friends, what Moses said about Israel could be said about us. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. That's the way we come into this world, in rebellion against God. It is the nature of the flesh to go against God. Even after we are in Christ, even, even after we are no longer in Adam, even, even after we've been redeemed, we still have the flesh and the flesh resists godliness. We all have an inclination to move away from God and we need this convicting word of the word of God. And the, the good hope here is that the word of God doesn't just convict us. The Word of God doesn't just reprove us, but it also, notice he says, gives correction. That is, it will restore you because you are incapable. Not only is the Scripture powerful to expose our sinful error, but it is powerful to change us and transform us from that error. So when Paul says it is profitable, it is able to bring about correction, he's, he's using a word that simply means to straighten. It is, it is to take a person and to stand them up straight. It is, in a very real sense, to straighten us out. But we, we've got that saying, don't we? He just needs... That kid just needs some straightening out. That old man just needs to be straightened out. That's what the Word of God does. It, it affixes us to the right pathway of God and gets us going in the right direction. And we need that. We need the Scripture to do that because we can't do that on our own. We are incapable of fixing ourselves. We, we cannot fix ourselves any more than the cancer patient can do cancer surgery and radiation and chemo on himself. He needs, he needs someone from outside of him to come and to open him up and to remove the cancer, close it back up, and then apply the proper medications so that he can be healed from his cancer. You can't do that on your own. And friends, you can't fix your sin problem on your own either. You need someone outside of you to come in and do radical surgery on your sin and remove the sin and close it up and bring healing. That is 
the Word of God being used by the Spirit of God to change and transform you. And and friends, this, this means that even while there's always a measure of pain that comes with reproof, it's not very often that I receive a word of correction from someone and I go, oh, thank you, brother, for showing me my sin. Sometimes that happens. But isn't it true that when somebody points out sin, we just kind of bow up? It's hard, isn't it? We don't want the change. We don't want the transformation. We just, we just want to be left alone. Just let me go this way. It's not really bothering anybody. But friends, when the Scripture reproves us, there is the hope that it will also always correct us. It will always take us in the right pathway. It will always lead us the right way. It will always produce the right result when we submit to it. And the right result is that it will also train you because you need oversight. The word for training here is a pedagogical term. It is, it is a word that refers to training children. So children need discipline, structure, correction. They need help holding by the hand, applying appropriate corrective discipline at the right time so that they move in the right way, so that they live responsibly. And we need that same thing. I need someone to come alongside me and say, Terry, here's the way to go. I need someone to come alongside me and say, you need training and here's what you need to do. I, I, I don't have the ability to do that myself. I, I need someone over top of me guiding me in the right direction. And notice that the apostle says it is a particular kind of training. It is training in righteousness. The scriptures are not a book to educate our scientific minds. or It's not a book to, to give us strategy for our sporting events. It's, it's not a, a book to provide specific regulations for our diet so that, so that we lose 20 pounds this year. That's not why the book is given. It's given to instruct us in righteousness so that we live and think in right ways before God for right reasons. Now, it's right here that a lot of people start to push back. And some will say, too many in fact, even within the church, they will say, well, we understand, we agree with the Apostle Paul, verse 15, that that the sacred writings, the scriptures, can give you a wisdom that leads to salvation. We understand that, that salvation is in this book, but, but for the really big problems of life, we need something else. We need, we need psychologists to come alongside. We need some worldly wisdom. We need, we need some, some application that comes from the world because the world really understands these things better than the Scriptures do. The Scriptures don't really speak to all the the areas, the places where we live. We, we, we need supplemental help to the Scriptures. And that's why I read this entire chapter to you, because I wanted you to see the context into which the Apostle Paul wrote verses 16 and 17. Jump back up to verse 1 and 2. In the last days, difficult times will come. What kind of times will they be, Paul? Men will be lovers of self, selfish, Lovers of money, greedy, consumptuous, boastful, arrogant, revilers, ungracious with their words, disobedient to parents. (laughs) I was on a flight, I think I was coming back from Florida to see my dad, and there were some parents that were having trouble with their children. And I happened to be fairly early on the flight, and the flight attendant was standing right next to me, and here this three-year-old comes, another three-year-old comes, and the parents are just pleading with the children, please, will you just be nice? Please, will you go down the aisle? And the stewardess, flight attendant, looks at me and says, when I was a kid, my parents didn't ask me to do stuff that way. <laughs> I'm with you, sister. I wouldn't have made it either. Right? Um, disobedient to parents. That's, that's people in this culture. Ungrateful, unholy unloving, irreconcilable, 
malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. If anything could define our culture, couldn't that phrase define it? Sounds like the world I live in. Doesn't it sound like the world you live in? Do people in this world that we live in, does, do people that the world that Paul was writing about here, do they love Jesus and do they love the gospel and do they love Christ and do they love the word of God? No. They're always learning, verse 7, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They are opposed, just as Janus and Jambres were opposed to Moses. These also are opposed to the truth. What truth? The word of God truth. They, they look at the world and they say, who cares about Scripture? Let's get rid of it. They don't want the Scripture. But Paul says, verse 10, now you followed my, what's the first thing that he says? Teaching. What was Paul teaching? This book. And this book was sufficient to see him through persecution. This book, verse 14, was sufficient to train him up from childhood to know how to live in that kind of world that Paul already was talking about and to give him wisdom that doesn't just lead to salvation but leads to the fullness of salvation so that salvation is worked out in every area of our lives so that he will say in verse 17, the man of God is adequate for every good work. And if you're gonna, if you're gonna help people in this kind of situation, what will you do? Verse 2 of chapter 4, preach the word. There's only one tool that's gonna help people, and that is the word of God preached faithfully. Whether it's popular, in season, or unpopular, out of season, there's only one thing that will change people, and that is the word of God. Oh friends, this book is sufficient for everything. And this word, This word does one more thing, and that is it is God's word to equip believers. Here's the purpose of God's word. God's word is given to us, notice verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate. Here's here's the reason. Why, Why do we have scripture given to us by God? It is given to us by God so that the man of God, and that phrase man of God is used in the Old Testament to often refer to the prophet, but I think the Apostle Paul is using it more broadly than that. He's just talking about the person who is rightly related to God. So that if you are rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, you are adequate and equipped for every good work. That is, you are specifically and specially adapted to your calling. You can meet all of the demands that have been placed on you. You are, you are adequate. You are proficient in living life because of the effect of the Word of God on your life. And you're equipped for every good work. That is, you're fully furnished. Like, like going to, to rent an apartment or a house and they say, fully furnished. Everything you need to live is in that apartment. Everything you need to live life is in this book. You're fully furnished with what you need. Scripture can meet the demand of life and every calling of God on our lives. It is sufficient and proficient to produce what is needed in every circumstance. It provides knowledge and direction for every need in ministry and life for Timothy and for every believer, every man of God, you and me. Scripture will never be deficient in its guidance toward the good works that God has called us to. It is always going to give us exactly what we need. My favorite commentator on the New Testament, D. Edmund Hebert, writes this, Wherever it is allowed to have its intended result, instruction by Scripture will secure for every believer continuous, growing, inward capacity and readiness for the accomplishment of everything pleasing to the Lord. Friends, if we're going to be effective in ministry, we must know what this book says and trust that it will do what it says it can do. Heath Lambert told a story a number of years ago about going into his kitchen pantry one day 
to look for some things to take care of his children. His wife woke up sick one morning, unable to get out of bed and prepare a meal for their children. And so he thought, well, what can be so hard about that? I'll just open the pantry and I'll just get the stuff out and I'll put it together. And he opened the pantry and he saw, you know, containers of flour and oil and yeast and sugar and salt and the various and sundry other things and said, well, I, I see what Lauren uses, but I'm not sure what to do. So he did what every other self-respecting man would do. He packed up the kids and took them to McDonald's where they knew how to put breakfast together. And then he says this, if you understand the story, you recognize the difference between resources and facility. I had more than enough resources in my pantry that morning to prepare a delightful breakfast for my children. My problem was that I did not have my wife's facility to transform those resources into something consumable by my children. It is the same way with the Bible and counseling. We have more than enough scriptural resources to assist any troubled person whom the Lord would send our way. What we are often missing is the facility to share those resources with folks who are experiencing trouble in a manner that leads to help. Our goal, my brothers and sisters, is to develop facility with the Scriptures, to handle them with wisdom and accuracy so that we can use and apply those Scriptures to the diverse problems that we face and our fellow members face and the people in our community face. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's, let's not be those who are just surrounded by the Scriptures, but let's be those who have taken the Scriptures in and been transformed by those Scriptures and now can use those Scriptures to minister to those who are in need. We have one tool, and it is the inspired, sufficient Word. Our Father, we thank You this morning for such a profound reminder of what You have spoken, how You have spoken, and what your, what your Word can do. Would You change us by this Word? Would You give us delight in this Word? And would You give us effectiveness in using this Word in the lives of others? We pray in the name of Christ and for the glory of Christ. Amen.